Yes. Good morning. It is great to see you today. And uh, on this uh, spring break weekend, I know a number of our cohorts are en route to warmer weather somewhere in the U.S., but we are here, and I believe God has something for us. I've got my annual bout with a dry, scratchy throat, so if I conk out right in the middle of the sermon, that's just more time for you guys to come up and testify and give praise to God, so you can be praying about that. This is the culmination today is of our 50-day Mind Shift Challenge. It was 50 days ago that we began this journey together. We decided to ask God to use His Word, and specifically the uh, Philippians chapters 2, 3, and 4, to adjust our thinking, right? To be more in line with how He thinks. Mind Shift is what we called it. Our theme verse for this challenge all along has been Philippians 2.5. If you know it, say it with me. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, think like Jesus. Think more and more like he thinks. I love the Think Like Jesus t-shirt that Enver designed for us. Aaron's got one on right now. Would you stand up, Aaron? Just model that for us this morning. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. We hope it'll be a conversation starter when you're out and about and people look at you and see the image of those two heads melded together and say to you, what the heck is that? And then you can explain to them what this is all about. Well, if uh, you are new, new to New Life today, we welcome you as well. And you're getting in on the very end of this Series, and then we'll be making our way into uh, anticipating Holy Week, which is coming up very, very soon. You can take the uh, study guide out of your worship folder if you want to reach inside and pull that out. You can follow along with us. We've been seeing through our study of the book of Philippians that thinking affects living, right? Our thinking affects our behavior. So think right, live right. In other words, transformation of our lifestyle begins with the renewing of our minds. That's inside-out transformation. We believe the Lord has been doing just that in many of our lives these past 50 days. Now, reach again into your worship folder and pull out this little colored triangle, if you will. It looks like all these triangles up on the stage hanging from the ceiling. Our creative team put their heads together and wanted to devise a way to visually represent the mind shifts that many of us have been experiencing, just to keep it in front of us and hopefully seal it in our hearts. So you might have seen when you walked in the Mind Shift board that's in our lobby. It's back here on this side, across from the cafe over there. And the idea is that you would take a moment and write on your little triangle the particular mind shift that you've been experiencing through the work of God. And then when we're done this morning, go out and pin it on that bulletin board so other people can see it and uh, rejoice that God is indeed in at work in our lives. So you might write something like this, uh, thinking more like Jesus in putting others before myself, or maybe um, experiencing a mind shift in how I think about my past, or maybe learning to turn my worries into prayers and experiencing the peace of God or whatever particular way you feel like God has been working in your life. Just take a moment, put a phrase or a sentence to it, and uh, we'll be able to 
take a look at those and rejoice in the work that God is doing in our lives. And in addition to that, we're going to take some time after my sermon this morning to give you the opportunity, if you feel led to do so, to come up and share with everyone else the particular work that you believe God's been doing in your life, how MindShift has been used by God to impact your life. So you can be thinking about that as well. But first, I do have a sermon for you, okay, to wrap up this series and our study in the book of Philippians. What a wonderful letter. What a divinely inspired piece of correspondence we've been walking through. One person emailed me this week and said, Pastor Steve, please, never, ever, 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 ever leave the book of Philippians. It's awesome. And I agree, but we are actually going to finish it up today. Well, as Paul gets ready to close this letter to this beloved congregation, he takes a few lines to thank them, once again, for the financial gift that they had sent to him by the hand of Epaphroditus. And in in doing that, he brings up a topic that has implications for every follower of Jesus who has ever lived, and especially those of us who live in 21st century Western culture. So listen as I read the final paragraphs in Paul's letter to the Philippians, beginning with chapter 4 and verse 10. Listen as I read. Paul wrote this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord, that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then his final closing remarks. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let me say a prayer for us that the Lord might speak to us today. Father God, thank you so much for this incredible letter. We believe these are the very words of the living God. And I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts this morning about contentment and reveal to us in a personal way the secret to contentment that Paul had learned. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we all know that it is a common courtesy, both then and now, that whenever you receive a gift of some kind, that you would acknowledge that gift by writing a a thank you note, right? And thanking 
people for the gift. And that is exactly what Paul is doing here. He's, he's basically saying, thank you, Philippians, for renewing your concern for me by sending me this gift. But you know, the, the central theme here is really the idea of contentment. Do you see that? Paul said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. He says it twice. I've learned the secret of being content. And I believe the Lord wants to speak to us today about this matter, being content, no matter what our circumstances are. Because let's be honest, we live in a most discontented culture. Isn't that the case? In fact, probably the most discontented society ever in the history of the world. When we talk about being content, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about possessing an inner peace or tranquility or satisfaction that is irrespective of our circumstances or material comforts. You've heard me before make a distinction between happiness and joy, right? Happiness is based on happenings, which is temporary, but joy is based on Jesus, which is eternal. Now we read here that Paul is a contented man. He's at peace. But maybe you were here a few, few weeks ago and you heard me say that Paul was not a contented man, that he had a holy discontent. Remember that? When it came to his relationship with Christ. So let me distinguish the two. It is true that Paul was not content when it came to how much he knew Jesus. He felt like there was more of Jesus to know. And so he was straining, pursuing, running his race to know and love Jesus more. He was unsatisfied with his relationship with Jesus, but now here he's not talking about that. He's talking about his situation, his, his material possessions. And he says, now when it comes to that, I'm content. I'm at peace. And think about that for a minute. Paul was in prison. He was under house arrest. His freedom is very limited. He's chained, as we saw, to a Roman guard 24-7, day in, day out, week in, week out. He doesn't have many possessions to speak of, and yet he says, I have learned to be content. He's not craving more stuff, more conveniences, an easier go of it in life. When it comes to his situation, he's, he's satisfied. His motto here is basically, I have what I need. I have enough. You know, when I studied this passage, I could not help but think about my trip to Uganda a couple of summers ago to visit for a week our partners there in Makono Village, Pastor Davis and Betty Kagozi and their family and all of our friends there in Makono Village. It was a tremendous experience. But you know, what left the deepest mark in me from that experience was the picture of utter contentment and even joy that I saw in the faces of our brothers and sisters there, and especially the children. And I'm telling you, when it comes to material possessions, they have nothing. I've got more possessions in one, one dresser drawer than many of them have to speak of. And yet they have Christ. And to them, Christ is enough. And I'm telling you, it made me uncomfortable. I felt convicted about my lack of joy and lack of contentment in Christ. It really did. Because you know, our culture is quite a bit different, isn't it? Here. In fact, when you think about it, think about this. Our economy would completely collapse 
if all of a sudden everybody became content with what they have. I mean, it would just crumble. Entire industries have sprung up that are geared to ratchet up your discontentment. I mean, really, how can you even look yourself in the mirror every morning driving that old beater of a car that you're slogging around town in every day? How can you do that? Don't you have any self-respect? All the people who are somebody have newer, shinier stuff, and you're still limping along with one of those outdated models. What's the matter with you? Don't you want to be like them? You better get with the program. (laughs) In our culture, being content with what you have is seen as the mindset of losers, isn't it? But what we find in the Bible is, once again, the way of Christ goes counterculture. Remember that upside-down kingdom of Jesus that we've talked about? Here it is manifested again. Listen to how the Bible speaks about this in 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Almost sounds like a foreign language in our culture, doesn't it? People who want to get rich, it says, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Hebrews 13.5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In other words, God is saying, I am enough. If you have me, you have everything you really need forever. Praise God for that. Let me give you a few facts about contentment as we see it in the scriptures. Especially from here in Philippians chapter 4. First, contentment means that your joy, your joy, is not dependent upon having pleasant circumstances. It's not dependent upon your circumstances. It's not affected. It's not touched by what's going on in your situation. Second, I take great hope in this, and you should too, contentment can be learned. Paul said twice, I have learned to be content. And so there are some of you sitting in the room this morning and you are chronically discontent, but I want you to know there's hope for you. You can learn the secret of contentment, and so can I. Third, contentment arises from receiving inner strength from another source, and we're going to talk about that more in a moment. Fourth, contentment frees you. It frees you up to be concerned about other people. Fifth, contentment empowers you to gratefully receive God's material blessings when he does choose to bless you with material blessings. You can enjoy them for what they were given for. And then finally, contentment is the result of trusting in God's sufficient supply. As I said, some of you in this room this morning are plagued by chronic discontentment. You might not even realize it. You might just think, well, Isn't everybody that way? Isn't that how everybody lives? Always craving for more, more, more? Maybe you would even claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you don't see any real problem with being this way. But I want you to know there is a problem with being that way. Continually craving for more and more. You see, when you begin to trace discontentment down to its roots, which we should do, 
What you find at the core of discontentment is this, a dissatisfaction with Jesus. A belief that Jesus is not enough and that what he is providing for you is not enough. Here's how I think it often often works with us. We, We get in our minds a standard of living that for some reason we come to feel entitled to. Like, I, I, I deserve to live at this certain standard, and that standard includes all the cultural emblems of success that we Westerners would identify as such. The house, the car, the closet full of clothes, and all the accessories of the American dream. If by a certain point in your life you have not yet possession of those things, by age 25, or 35, or 45, or 55, if you're not living that lifestyle at that point in your life, you just get kind of rankled by that. It kind of fries your bacon. (laughs) Or, if you have managed to acquire those things, you wake up one day to find to your dismay that your neighbor next door has gone one better than you. And poof, your contentment is vaporized in that moment. And you're thinking, I got to pull ahead again. I got to make it happen. Everybody else seems to be chasing after all these things, so that must be where life is at. But I ask you, is it really? Did not even our Savior himself say, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions? Didn't Jesus say that? And he would know, right? I mean, he made us. He knows how the human heart works. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, Jesus said. But if the clarity of Jesus' own words is not enough, then how about this? Every time you hear the report of yet another wealthy celebrity who seemingly has it all taking their own life out of despair like happened just this past week with Mick Jagger's girlfriend who seemingly had it all, right? 49 years old. Despairing of life. Every time you hear another story like that, let it be like a shock treatment to your system. Wake up! You can never accumulate enough stuff to satisfy your soul. You weren't built for that. You were not created to be satisfied by stuff. The writer of Ecclesiastes said it so well. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. They asked the noted billionaire John D. Rockefeller, you know, a century ago, how much money do you want to accumulate? You know what his answer was? Just a little more. Just a little more. I don't quite have enough yet. So, some of you are hearing me talk, and, but the wheels are turning in your mind, and you're thinking, well, now wait a second, Steve. Are you saying that God does not ever want us to do anything to try and improve our situation? Are you saying that it's a sin to, to seek to upgrade our lifestyle? No, I'm not saying that. The Bible certainly does tell us that God richly provides all things for our enjoyment. Praise God for that. But here's what I am saying. Idolatry is very insidious. It is so subtle, and it is rampant in our culture. It's in the very air that we breathe. You see, the problem is not in having a shiny new car car or a sleek new boat or a bigger, 
flat screen TV. Possessions are not the problem. Idolatry is the problem. The problem is that, just like John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory constantly manufacturing new things other than Jesus to look to for contentment and happiness. You've heard it called substitute functional saviors. False gods, idols, idols. And they are all doomed to fail. It's one thing that all substitute functional saviors have in common. You know what it is? They all overpromise and underdeliver. You know this is true. You know it's true. There was that thing that captured your attention, that captivated you, and you saved up, or you just you know, slid the plastic through, and you went out and got it, and three months later, you're putting it on Craigslist, aren't you? For a third of what you bought it for. It lost its luster. Things are doomed to not satisfy our human hearts. We were created for something else. count on it you will never accumulate enough stuff to satisfy your heart you can rack up a lot of credit card debt trying but then you'll be doubly messed up (laughs) discontent still and deep in debt somehow somehow Paul the apostle was able to be a contented man despite having hardly any creature comforts around We don't find him being whiny about his lack of amenities. His joy was not touched by his adverse circumstances. And what gives me hope is that he says that he learned contentment. That there's a secret to to it that he discovered and he reveals it right here for us. I believe it's a fourfold secret. And as we might suspect, it's a secret that has to do with what goes on up here. With what goes on up here in our minds. It's a fourfold mind shift. And I really want us to get it this morning. So here's the first aspect of it. Trusting in God's sovereignty. Trusting in the sovereignty of God. I don't know what it is, but 2014 has been a year of, um, and we're hardly into it, right? A few months. But I've had more conversations with people this year around this topic of trusting the sovereignty of God than in any similar period that I can recall uh, in, in my whole ministry. I find myself over and over and over again urging people to trust the plan of God. A professional woman in our church who suddenly found herself unemployed and without any immediate prospects, struggling to make sense of it all. And we're praying together and I'm saying, you know, let's pray that God will give you the faith to trust his sovereign plan. A seemingly healthy young man, totally blindsided by the shocking diagnosis of cancer, fearing the worst but trying to have faith, trust the sovereignty of God. Some friends of mine involved in a car accident that jeopardized their health and maybe their jobs. A pastor friend of mine on the other side of the country surprised to find himself one day at odds with the rest of his leadership team wondering what God is up to, and I'm praying with him over the phone saying, brother, you gotta trust God. You gotta trust the sovereign, providential plan of God Almighty. Paul, of course, was in prison for what? Preaching the gospel, right? I wonder how many of us in his shoes would have questioned God 
like, now wait a second, God. I thought in your word you say that you bless obedience. I'm being obedient to you. This is blessing? If this is blessing, I'd hate to see cursing. Even thinking back, as he did on that long season where he received no support from this Philippian church, there's still no angst or anger in his writing to them. Instead, I sense Paul had an underlying trust in God's plan. Kind of like Joseph. Back in the Old Testament, the teenager who received a vision from God about his future, who had to learn over the next 20 years to trust the twists and the turns of God's sovereign plan for him until that day when God elevated him to prominence. Or like Esther of old, who came to the realization that God had placed her in her situation for a greater purpose than just her own safety and security. Or like Daniel, who even though he got displaced from his homeland and carried off to a foreign country, continued to pray three times a day, every day, Trusting God's plan even when he was on the lunch menu for lions. Like the teenager Mary, the young virgin who found herself the object of scorn and derision through a pregnancy that she had nothing to do with. And like Jesus, who agonized in the garden over the implications of him carrying out the plan of God, and yet he refused to run away, he refused to take an easier path. All of these learned what each of us must learn. Listen, the Lord God Almighty is sovereign over all things, even evil and suffering. He's sovereign over all things. He's working all things in accordance with the purpose of his will. Listen, he's the Lord, you're not, neither am I. Like John the Baptist said, I am not the Christ. I would say, I am not the Christ, you are not the Christ, there is only one. Some of you need to resign as head of the universe because there's already someone occupying that position, rightfully so. King David wrote this, Our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. That's the Lord. Your contentment of heart and my contentment of heart begins with a deep trust in the sovereignty of an almighty God and his purposes. The God who does what he does for his own pleasure in seeking his glory and the good of his people. Have you discovered that only God is able to weave those two things together the glory of God, and the good of his people through the circumstances of our lives. I love what John Piper says. When God's doing one thing, he's doing a thousand things. And you and I have no idea what's going on behind the scenes as God is working for his glory and for your good. Secret number one, trust in the sovereignty of God. Second aspect of this secret includes one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, a, a verse that hangs on a million plaques in a million hallways all around the world, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And that's the second aspect of this secret. Not only trusting in God's sovereignty, but here now relying upon God's strength. Relying on God's strength. And when you read that famous verse in its context, you realize that what Paul is saying here is that by leaning on Jesus, 
he was able to endure any kind of situation, anything that life threw at him, from poverty to abundance, from being well-fed and satisfied to going hungry. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me without losing my joy and without losing my faith. Wouldn't you like to be able to say that? Wouldn't you like to be able to say, doesn't matter what comes at me, I'm always clinging to Christ and I always have my joy. I know I would. I think what Paul is saying here is, I have an internal power source that you can't see, that I'm drawing from. When my tank is empty, when my resources are depleted, when I'm at the end of my rope, I plug into that power source and I experience a fresh surge of power that propels me through the situation with joy. I think Paul was saying, my source is his strength. My source is his strength. Church, listen again to the word of God. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. David wrote, the Lord is the strength of his people. He's the saving refuge of his anointed. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Run to the Lord. A place of refuge was a place where troubled people ran to to be safe and secure. Run to the Lord. Where do you run when you get in trouble? Where do you run when life gets hard? Do you run to the Lord? That's where you're going to find the strength to endure despite difficulty. Strength to keep fighting against lies and evil and the enemy. Strength to keep running your race in pursuit of that prize, even though everybody else seems to be chasing other things. You know what? I can do all things through Christ who gives me what? Strength. Greek word, original word, dunamis. From which we get our word? Dynamite. Dynamite. God's saying, draw upon my dino strength. I will infuse my dino power into your heart so that you won't cave under difficult circumstances. My source is his strength. Would you say that with me? My source is his strength. My source is his strength. Maybe that should be a new motto for you. And maybe it's a mind shift because you're used to relying on your own uh, resources to make it happen. Have you noticed that God doesn't mind bringing us to a point where we're at the end of our rope, the end of our strength, tank's empty? He doesn't mind. Why? Because he wants us to realize that in our weakness, his strength is perfected. Praise God for that. I pray for all of you a prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with dunamis, dino power, through his spirit in your inner being. See, he's talking about inner strength. He's not talking about being all buff and ripped on the outside. You can be all buff and ripped on the outside and be a weakling on the inside. And you can be all buffed and ripped on the outside and be buff and ripped on the inside. (laughs) He's talking about inner strength. Inner strength comes from who? I can do all things through Christ, who has a vast reservoir of inner strength 
to make available to his people. So the secret of contentment lies in trusting in God's sovereignty, drawing on God's strength. And when that's your mindset, then just like Paul, you can become freed up to express this third element of contentment, and that's focusing on God's people. Yeah, focusing on God's people. You see, discontented people are that way in part because their focus is on who? Themselves. Write this down. Self-focused people are always discontent. Self-focused people are always discontent. They're always grasping and clawing at other people, trying to get other people to make them feel good about themselves. The problem is it's a vicious cycle because their discontentment leads to more self-focus, which leads to more discontentment, which leads to more self-focus. And some people are in this cycle and have been for years. The astounding thing to me about what Paul writes here is his utter disregard for himself, his utter selflessness. I mean, here he is thanking the Philippian church for their gift, but look again at how he does it in verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles, drop down to verse 17, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. Say what? You guys sent me this gift, and I appreciate it, but what I'm really juiced up about is that your generosity towards me is padding your heavenly 401k account. And I'm excited about that. You're laying up treasure in heaven through your generosity down here on the earth to me, and that is what really thrills my heart. And that, that's amazing, isn't it? That's a mind shift that actually we've already encountered before in this book, others before self, others before self. I'm more thrilled about what God is doing in your life than what you're doing in my life. That's what he's saying. And you know what that's the fruit of? It's the fruit of being fully content. It's the fruit of a heart that is at rest. It's the fruit of a man who's saying, I actually already have all that I really need but I love that you wanted to help me. It was good of you, and it is good for you. And I rejoice in that. I think we're all inspired when someone who is in difficult circumstances themselves actually focuses outward on other people and blesses them. I remember going to the hospital one time to visit a lady, uh, and I was going to pray for her. And uh, she looked up at me and said, Pastor Steve, can I pray for you? I'm like, you're in the hospital, you know, you're laying in the hospital, I'm here to pray for you, and she wanted to pray for me. God bless me. It's like the family who's broke, but who prepares a meal to help another family who's going through a hard time. Just inspires us towards Christ, doesn't it? Philippians 2, 4 says, every one of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's what Paul was doing here. And then this great promise of God's provision that we're all probably familiar with, Philippians 4.19. It was given to those who put others' needs before their own needs. Paul says, look, you've been generous to supply my needs, so here's God's promise to you. Verse 19, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You will have 
all that you need in Christ. That's what he's saying. And so the secret of contentment that Paul had learned involved trusting in the sovereignty of God, drawing on the strength of God, and learning to focus outward on the people of God instead of focusing on self. And then lastly, and maybe most importantly, you and I will find ourselves growing more content in our heart no matter what life throws at us when our hearts are aimed for God's glory. When our hearts are set on God's glory. It's just a short doxology that closes out this letter, but it had become really the dominant theme of Paul's whole life and ministry. Do you see it in verse 20? Why don't you read it with me? Philippians 4.20 To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And amen means what? So be it. May it be so. You know, let me say this. In a sense, you have one overarching decision to make in your life that will determine so much and so do I. Will I live my life For the glory of God or for the glory of Steve? Will I seek to live my life in such a way that God looks great and that God looks awesome or that I look awesome and great? That is a foundational life choice, is it not? Two foundations and so much is constructed off of that choice. Do I exist for the glory of God or do I exist to make a name for myself? Huge decision, and make no mistake, it's a choice that will determine your level of contentment in this life. Because you will realize that God's glory is most magnified when others see you valuing God above your ease, your convenience, when they see you worshiping God above entertainment, when they see you being satisfied in God even without having all the trappings of worldly success. When his fame becomes your and my preeminent pursuit and joy, then the people who know us can justifiably say, wow, God must be more awesome than I thought. I mean, look at how Jim's living his life. Look at how Mary's living her life. Seemingly satisfied. When everybody else is chasing after all these other things on this planet, these people seem to be satisfied in God. He must be more than I thought. He, he, he seems to be their supreme treasure in all of life. When we live in such a way that that happens, we're living for the glory of God. Amen? And that's the most satisfying, contented way to live. For the glory of God. As David wrote, Thy loving kindness is better than what? Nothing in life better than the steadfast love of the Lord. Have you experienced that yet in your life? Are you still grasping and clawing at the things of this world to try to fill up some emptiness in your soul? That's a black hole, you know that? It'll never be satisfied with stuff. One of my favorite names of God is El Shaddai from the Old Testament, El Shaddai. Some of you remember the song by that name from decades ago. You know what it means? The God who is enough. The God who is sufficient. The all-satisfying God. And that is what he is. 
Do you know him that way yet? You can. Contentment will flood your soul as you experience the all-satisfying El Shaddai, God, in your life at the core of your being. Well, what a letter this is, amen? What a letter. Thank you, God, for giving us the book of Philippians. There are mind shifts galore found all throughout this letter. And perhaps the Lord has impressed one or more of them on your heart these last 50 days as we've walked through it together. The Cedarville crew is going to come back and lead us in a worship song. And we're going to open up the opportunity. And we don't do this a lot, so I hope you'll take advantage of it. We're going to open up the opportunity for you as you feel prompted by the Holy Spirit to come and to share with the rest of us a testimony of how God has used his word and this this mind shift challenge to impact your life. It could be something huge, like we heard about last service. It might be something small. But um, if you believe that God has worked in your life in such a way that it would bless all of us to hear about that, then what I'm going to ask you to do is during this song, I'm going to ask you to, to get out of your seat and come and sit in these front rows up here, okay? And uh, Pastor Brian and Pastor Joe will be up here. They'll hand you a little card that just basically will help you organize your thoughts. And if, if you can keep it to a minute or so, then we can hear from a number of people. Um, and we would love to do that. So, Cedarville crew, come on back up. Let me say a prayer for us. Let's stand together. And uh, so I'm going to pray that the Lord will... Touch those of you that he wants to share with the rest of us, all right? Father God, thank you. Thank you, thank you for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for this message of contentment in Christ that so many of us needed to hear today. I pray that I would become more satisfied in Christ. And I pray that for all of my friends, my brothers and sisters here. Lord, as we... um, lift our voices in song to you in these next few moments as some come and prepare to share a testimony with the rest of us. I pray that you would be sovereign over all of that as well. Lord, I pray that the congregation would be blessed to hear of your great work in our lives and that all glory and all praise would be given to you. And I offer this prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen.